an ocean, but a multitude of drops. Hello. Hi. How are you? Good. I'm good. good. How good. Are you? I'm good. We haven't recorded in a while, so this should be fun and interesting. Um, what are we doing today, Camden? Cloud Atlas. Woo! Cloud Atlas. This is our, what, eighth episode? Yep. Yeah. Anyway, we are doing Cloud Atlas. That is, all, yeah, that's obvious. Yeah. Anywho. It's a movie. It is. It's a movie. penultimate movie mm-hmm. in our discussions. Yeah. We only got one left, and then we are diving in to sunset mm-hmm. so look out world but in the meantime uh yes today we are tackling cloud atlas this should be very interesting because this is a um complicated movie it's a big movie it it's very. a long movie mm-hmm. and uh it's not a normal movie either no so it's, it's kind of tricky to talk about it's another adaptation too yes so that should be we will talk a little about the book because mm-hmm. i have read it yes you've read it and i have not yes. so I was I was going in blind. That's but. good. Different perspectives. Mm-hmm. However, it is also, in a way, not that hard to talk about, mm-hmm. because it's split into six stories, True. and we can kind of just talk about each one of those best we can. Yeah. Yeah. Before it, we talk about all of them combined. smushed together. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This is a usually I take notes when we do screenings on this before we get re- prepped for the podcast. And uh, I'm not going to lie, I gave up taking notes on this one because it's just, uh, there's a lot of storylines going on all all at once. And I was like, I'm just going to sit back and enjoy because you just got to let it wash over you. Um, So I guess we can start with the normal, when Mm -hmm. did you you first see it? I first saw Cloud Atlas. Yes. Um, What came out in 2012? That's correct. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the fall, I believe. Yes. I saw it. A few months later, because um, I don't know if I even realized it was b- done by the Wachowskis, and also we should say uh, half directed by Tom, whose name I can't pronounce. Tom Tyker. <laughs> Tom Tom Tyker. Tom Tyker. I don't know. Yes. It's uh, that's his name. He yeah. did half of it. Although in a way, I think they both did the whole movie together. Yes. It's just for for ease of description. It's often said that. Uh, he directed three of the six parts, and the Wachowskis did the other three. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I, I saw the trailer for the movie. I think that my, my brother showed me the trailer. He told me that it looked cool. And for some reason, we both decided independently that we wanted to read this book if we were going to see this movie before we saw it. And so around when the movie came out, I read the book in that same like fall time period. Uh, but I didn't actually get around to seeing the movie in the theaters. And so after it came out, sometime in the spring, I watched it in 2013. And I didn't really like it that much the first time. Uh, I, I liked it, but I had really loved the book, and it was sort of disappointing more than anything. I, I just I felt it go through me. <laughs> like I saw the movie, I just didn't feel much for it for some reason. It was, like, too much to process all at once. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I don't remember when I saw it again. Uh, I think actually pretty soon afterwards. But for some reason, the second time, it just clicked properly. And I really liked it. And I've seen it a lot of times since then because I've shown it to people since I like it. It is my my favorite. 
Wachowski movie. Although I will say that that doesn't mean it's necessarily the best. Just scene to scene, uh, moment by moment, I don't think it's their best movie, but it's the most special to me, I guess. It helps that I read the book as well, I suppose. And then that all coincided with me realizing it was a movie by the Wachowskis and looking back at some of their other movies and actually seeing all of them. So in that way, it's also important to me. And I don't remember when you first saw it. Um, I first heard about it with the trailer as well. I was vaguely aware that it was a book. And uh, from what I gathered from people who had read the book, it was... Uh, they're like, I have no idea how they're going to make this into a movie. Yes, it's we should say it's a pretty crazy trailer. Yeah, so I remember watching the trailer. The trailer is like six minutes long. And I was like, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> but I'm feeling like this is, with just the music and stuff, very momentous. Uh, yes. So I I didn't see it. I wasn't planning on seeing it. Um, I had a lot of friends in college who kind of, you know, got groups together to go see it. And I had heard about it afterwards, that it was very divisive. Some people really loved it. Some people really hated it, regardless of whether or not they'd seen the movie. Yeah. Um, a lot of people like to say the trailer is better than the movie. Yes, which is <laughs> not true, but okay. <laughs> to each their own, I suppose. Um, but yeah, and so I didn't see it, and it was kind of went off my radar until you showed it to me. And we watched it, and I distinctly remember thinking within the first half hour, I don't know what the fuck is going on, but it's cool. And I, I, and like as soon as I was watching it, and I knew it was going to be a long movie, I thought, oh yes, this is this is definitely going to take a, a rewatch or two. And that is actually one of the really great things about it is the more I watch it, the more I liked it, and and I've already liked it to begin with. I was a hundred percent sure that I hadn't, you know, really absorbed everything that I was supposed to first time around because I don't think that's entirely possible but um, yeah the more I watch it the more I'm just like very impressed with how they pieced it together like when we watched it this last time around I remember being like I don't understand how the hell they ever made this movie just in terms of like production and scheduling and logistics it's insane a Um, lot of maps written down on whiteboards I assume yeah well I I watched the a little bit of behind the scenes a while ago not recently for this podcast but they literally just had like a hallway length of index cards with all color coordinated so they could figure out the different timelines and storylines um, yeah. because well you could probably speak more to this on the book but in the movie it's just the six storylines going on at once all jumbled up together yeah. plus they made it harder for themselves since they decided to cast actors in multiple roles so they had to juggle the story but also juggle uh, getting different people where they needed to be every day when they were making it yeah so I mean I remember reading up on it and they're saying like oh yeah it was crazy one day I would be in this country playing this and then in that same week I'd be over in this country playing this character Mm -hmm. and so I think when all the actors got cast the Wachowskis and Tom were kind of like, hey guys, don't think of it as six individual roles if they did have those six roles through each storyline. They're like, think of it more as kind of like one genetic strain of a role. So a really good example, and we'll get into this more later, is um, like with Tom Hanks's character. He's in all six storylines, but the way it kind of works is he starts as like a really, really evil guy, and by the end, he's kind of like the redeemed guy. Yes. Um, if you kind of track it. And that doesn't, you know 
perfectly correlate if you look at his characters through each timeline. Like, obviously he gets better in the 70s timeline with Halle Berry before he explodes in a plane <laughs> than he does as, you know, the author in 2012 throwing someone out of a, out of a building. And, you know, overall, generically, he is supposed to be kind of getting better. Yes. Uh, yeah, so I liked it. I got very confused. And then upon rewatch, I was just like, oh, there's just, there's so much to unpack. But I really enjoy it. And the soundtrack's amazing. And... You know, it just makes me cry. So I think it's a very difficult movie to consume if you don't just kind of open yourself up to it. Because if you spend the first time watching it just trying to figure everything out, I don't think you're going to enjoy it. Yes. Because there's just, it's too much. There's too much overloaded. And so just not only trying to figure out the timeline and how people um, are cast in certain things... But I think it's more of like a thematic resonance mm-hmm. overall. I think it's more about uh, being felt than understood mm-hmm. logistically or practically. Well, as you said, it's thematic, I guess. It's it's more about what each story is about than what how all the pieces go together. Yeah, plot point to plot and point. And that might even be easier for someone who's read the book just because I knew that the actors playing different characters thing was more of a movie gimmick and so I wasn't overly focused on it the first time beyond just thinking it was fun Mm -hmm. but I'm sure that some people try a lot harder to parse out stuff like Tom Hanks's character's journey and they're trying to understand it since it doesn't quite go linearly Mm-hmm. And that can be a bit confusing because I don't know if it's necessarily the most important thing in the movie, uh, but it's a decision they made <laughs> that might throw a person off. Mm-hmm. I do know that actually caused a lot of controversy too with the film, aside from it being considered an adaptation that was kind of an impossible feat, but the fact that they did cast um, a majority of the actors into multiple roles, and what I mean by that is they're playing multiple like genders and races yes. and there is a big um, outcry yeah with um, just the controversy of having people play different races especially they're concerned like oh this is yellow face for the futuristic neo soul yeah, stuff I think mainly it's relevant to the neo soul yeah bit, and we can talk about that because we'll probably go through it in order mm-hmm. and I think we should say that yeah in the in the book uh, there are six stories mm-hmm going from the past to the future chronologically and you get the first half of each story mm-hmm. or I should say the first five stories and then halfway through each story it cuts off and goes to the next story until the final, the sixth story which plays all the way through and then the book proceeds back down the other way back through mm-hmm. from future to past and it concludes all the second halves of the stories that mm-hmm. it cut off previously which is a really interesting structure uh, probably wouldn't work as well in a movie so for the movie well when it starts uh, you get a bunch of jumbled up images I mm-hmm. think is the best way to put it from yeah. all of them and then it sort of settles down and introduces you to each one in turn one through six and then once the stage is set for all of them it just goes all over the place mm-hmm. and goes from one to the next depending on what they felt was best just for pacing and the emotions and the rhythm yes yeah so obviously it 
probably was a lot of trial and error and stuff and a lot trickier than the book to figure out how to do it and a lot of the reaction to the movie probably depends on how it works for you I think it's great and I, I love the book but I like the movie more now actually because I just think that structure is so fascinating and impossible to replicate in how unpredictable it is in the movie yeah. but uh yeah, that's that's how it goes, and I think the easiest way for us to do it is would just be to start in order, at least, much like the movie does. Yeah. And then we can jump around if we want. Yeah, I think that's good. Yeah. Okay, so um, the first story that you got is going to be, it's in the Pacific Islands in 1849, and it's with uh, Jim Sturgis. He's the lead character in that one. Yes. He's playing Adam... I forgot his Ewig. name. Ewig. Oh, Ewing, yeah. Adam yeah. Ewing. Um, and he has been, correct me if I'm wrong, it's been a while. There's a lot of information thrown out in the movie. Oh, yeah, it's it's one of the more confusing stories, I think, actually. Yeah. You haven't read the book. Um, He's essentially been sent to the Pacific Islands to do some sort of legal deal. To, to sign a, a contract for transporting slaves uh, for his father-in-law, who you don't You hear meet. about, but you don't yeah, meet Yeah, you don't meet until the end. And so you meet him, and he's already there in the Pacific Islands, and he basically signs and heads out. And uh, before he goes, he he witnesses a a slave being beaten, and he faints. And uh, when he wakes up, he seems to have a a sickness of some sort, and Mm -hmm. his doctor friend, uh, Dr. I forgot his name. Uh, For Tom Hanks, it's Dr. Henry Goose. Yes, Dr. Henry Goose, Tom Hanks. Having is, a ball, uh, by the way. Yes, that having role. a lot of fun. He's trying to help, trying to help him get better. And most of his story takes place with him on the ship headed back to America. Mm-hmm. And then he finds out that uh, that same slave that was being beaten has smuggled himself on board the ship and wants help to survive. And also, he's actually being poisoned by his doctor, Henry Goose, friend. Mm-hmm. Uh, who is pretending that he is helping him while he poisons him more and more, mm-hmm. so he can steal all of his golden. all of his golden riches? Yeah, and that's the basic setup for him. Mm-hmm. And and um, then the through line for that one is um, because every story is kind of connected, and this is the same way in the book. I'm assuming is you go from that storyline in the Pacific Islands over to in like Cambridge, Edinburgh in 1936 with Robert Robertshire. And he's yes. reading the journals of Adam. Yeah, Adam is, is writing journals mm-hmm. being read. Yes. And, yeah, it's a thing. Well, it's more clear, I suppose, in the book. Yeah. They do a nice job integrating that sort of thing mm-hmm. because uh, a lot of his dialogue still reads like it's him writing it down mm-hmm. in a journal. And you do get to see Robert Frobisher in the next story actually reading a little bit of it. Mm-hmm. But some of the other connections are not as clear. easily clear. That one's done very clearly i think but yeah uh how do we feel about this one do you like the first story i do like the first storyline i think it actually has one of my favorite shots in the well it's part of a sequence that i really like in the entire movie is um you have jim sturgis being like oh i will vouch for this guy i'm gonna turn this um stowaway slave into the captain with the hope that maybe he can take him on as a crew member. Mm-hmm. And so Jim Brabant is the captain in this storyline. And he's like, oh, well, if he can rig up this sail for me, then yeah, 
he can have him join the crew. And that's like an impossible task. But the guy does it because as one of the other crew members says, he has fish hook for legs or something or hands where he just climbs up the mast and completely rigs it no problem. And there's an awesome shot of him essentially like diving off the mast in order to pull the sail down. And it's just a really, really pretty shot. And I really like it because trailer shot. it's a good trailer shot, but it's also kind of... I don't know, it's just epic and majestic and it makes you feel um, within the sequence of that shot with the rest of the stuff that's going on. It's just kind of like a sense of heightened danger and yes. you're not sure. It's like, oh, he's really close to freedom. And that kind of hooks into another storyline in Eosoul where they're escaping and they're similarly very high up, diving around also and you don't know what's going to happen, but it's all in the advent of freedom. So it's that's great. exciting. It's a great edit. It's a really, really nice edit. Anyway, um, I like that story a lot. I always get really, really angry whenever he, he's like, yes, I'll go up, I'll, I'll rig the sail. And they're all planning on shooting him anyway. Mm -hmm. But then they're like, oh, we're just too damn impressed with you. We're not going to do that. Because um, it just kind of pisses me off. I'm like, guys, he's like fighting for his freedom and he does it and he's amazing. Why would you want to um, shoot him? His yeah. name, I believe, is uh, Atuya, I believe. Yeah. The slave. yeah. Yes. Played by David Kayasi. What's his name? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's it. I've seen him before in something else, but he's I don't great. remember. Yeah, but he's yeah good. I like that storyline. It's not my favorite storyline, but I do appreciate the ending because it's also the ending of the movie. Yeah. More or less. And I know it's the very end of the book. The last line is given to Adam. Mm hmm. Um, so the, yeah, I like that storyline. Yes, um, I like it a lot. I think Jim Sturgis is perfect for that mm -hmm. role. That naive, Lawyer. young, yeah. yes, he's very good in it. Yeah, you know, it's it's probably his his best mm -hmm. of the, in the movie. I mean, it's it's his main character role really, so that makes sense. But yeah. uh, especially coming from the book, I I thought he nailed it, mm -hmm. and everyone else is very good too. It's it's in a way one of the prettier stories i guess because yeah. it looks very nice out there on the on the sea yeah the, the boats and gorgeous. everything yeah and the island looks nice too mm -hmm. i'm not sure where they filmed some of that stuff probably in the pacific yes. <laughs> knowing them maybe, it's like we're maybe. gonna commit and go to the actual places we can go to so it's it's a simpler story mm -hmm. than some of the others For sure. uh in the book i know that uh, some people have more trouble with it because of the way adam talks mm. and the way he writes even though it's period appropriate, they, they find it very wordy and overdone in a way. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think maybe the movie makes that easier because you're, experiencing you're, not, reading it, you're it. not reading it. You're yeah. just hearing him say these things. And of course, it's a lot cut down. Right. But in general, I, I quite enjoy that one. So what's what's the second story? So the second one is uh, is the Cambridge and Burr one uh, in 1936 with Robert Frobisher. Mm -hmm. He's reading... Um, Adam's journals, but he is also kind of this, I don't know how, what you would call him, I was going to say vagabond, but that sounds really harsh, kind of a free-wielding spirit who, um, I think the beginning of it starts with him in bed with Sixsmith, and... Um, well, I think perhaps he was not always a vagabond. No, I but don't think so. But he, he was being professional and good and appeared to be at the... Uh, he was at Cambridge. Yeah, he was, he was doing music yes. in the proper way. Yes. <laughs> and um, he has been kicked out or mm -hmm. something. And you don't really get the exact details on that. And as a result, he's sort of scrounging to find a way to be successful anyway. Mm -hmm. And he decides to do that by worming his way into 
uh, being the assistant to Jim Broadbent's uh, old composer who Is hasn't it really Vivian. Yeah, Disney. Vivian Vivian Ayers. Yes. Who hasn't really done anything in a while, and Frobisher thinks that if he can, you know, help him to write some new music, then he can get a spot of room and board and, <laughs> and some yes some prestige of his own as well mm -hmm. and start composing his own stuff and getting it out there so yeah and I'm realizing as we talk about any of these mm -hmm. that they're all pretty easy to describe just because if you take them separately yeah. as part of the movie they all add up to probably around you know only half an hour or so mm -hmm. in their own since the movie's around three hours total yeah but like but I said, it's more edited around thematics than plot points. Yeah. Um, which is good because like the whole point is the interconnection and evolution of all these different characters and then different systems of you know oppression and stuff. They're yeah. really into well, that. Well, so this this story is a lot more different from the book version, but I I thought I would talk about that. Yeah. Afterwards. Fun. Okay. Uh, after we've talked about the the movie more, mm -hmm. it's not as important to the movie. But in the movie, I feel that it's definitely centered around uh, his oppression due to sexuality uh, in a way as as the first story is sort of about literal slavery. Mm -hmm. I guess that's why the, the first story is the least subtle in mm -hmm. a way, because it's, it's just about more overt oppression in a way. Mm -hmm. But uh, they, they maneuver the story, I think, so it's more about the fact that he can't be as successful a composer as he wants to be uh, because of who he is and because of how people think of him mm -hmm. and yes that's what the story <laughs> is is themed around i think the yeah. second story but it's also the smallest of the stories mm -hmm. and the most personal in a way so it has a different tone i think than the others especially because in the movie it's the only one in which uh, Ben Michelle, who plays Frobisher, mm -hmm. has a major part. Unlike most of the other actors, he he doesn't really have two major roles. He mm -hmm. really his main job is to play Frobisher, mm -hmm. and Say, how dare you? His role as Georgette is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And well, and he interacts with Jim Broadbent as Vivian Ayers, the composer. Mm -hmm. But beside from that, they're the only two who are really in that story mm -hmm. uh, that are that significant. And it it makes you feel more separate from the rest of the movie, I think, especially once you get to the end, because it's really the only story that ends pretty much just as a tragedy with little else to it, mm -hmm. uh, because he commits suicide at the end of his story, and it's it's almost hard to make that fit with the rest of them, mm -hmm. uh, in that it doesn't match up, I think, if in total it's a rather positive message the movie is sending mm -hmm. he's sort of the casualty that has to suffer to show that it doesn't always work, work yeah. as well as you might want well, it to well it's funny because there's a side plot that I didn't pick up the first time because there is so much information going on and I think this actually kind of ties into the difference with the book is um, so Frobisher's staying at the house with Vivian and Vivian's wife Jocasta is there and there's this one scene in the movie where um, they invite their German friend over yes. he's another composer to listen to the new music that Vivian's been producing with Robert 
and he's like, oh, it's amazing, and he goes on and on about it. And the whole scene is there for, you know, Vivian to point out to Robert, oh, you know, he, I, I always got that the German composer was in love with Vivian's wife. Yes. But he can't be with her because she's Jewish. So mm-hmm. that's just another side of, you know, oppression. And it's interesting because Vivian makes the comment to Robert. He's like, dear God, boy, don't you know what's going on in the world right now? Yes. Because it is set in kind of like the mid-30s. I mean, you're on the brink with World War II going on. I think that's important to Robisher because yeah. he, he is very self-centered. Yes. I mean, he has he has good reasons to uh, for his life to be difficult and mm-hmm. for him to feel sorry for himself. Yes. But he is also rather vain and you know thinks he could be the greatest composer ever, basically, mm-hmm. if he wanted to be. Mm-hmm. And doesn't really have an awareness of other issues that other people might be struggling yeah. with. I think he has more interpersonal issues. It's more yes. you know interior, and then. It's also important to note that while that's happening, at the same time, there is exterior conflict that is also oppressive to not yes. just him. But it could eventually be down the line, you know, because yeah, it wasn't just, it's anybody who yeah. is, you know, Jewish, not, different not race, different sexuality, quote unquote. The yeah. That's part of why it's the trickiest story yeah. to incorporate into the rest of the movie mm-hmm. and the story, because... Yes, what he's dealing with is really much more of a small personal issues. I mean, despite the the fear of oppression or of being shut down, mm-hmm. really, I think the reason he commits suicide is his own demons more than anything. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's some sort of depression or something, and that certainly is tied into with the other themes of the movie. But in a way, this is just about him not being able to break out of it. Yeah, break out of it himself. It's not necessarily about everyone else. Yeah. However, they do a nice job, I think, making it feel more like it belongs with the rest of the stories. Yeah, so you have the the through line with that one is he's writing letters to Six Smith. Yes. His lover from <laughs> Cambridge, yes. played by James Darcy, who I love. Is that how you say his last name? Darcy? Yeah, I think so. There's, there's the apostrophe in there, so it always throws me James out. Darcy is the only one who, gets who plays uh, the same character in two timelines. Yeah, so he plays the young Sixsmith in Robert Frobisher's timeline, and then in the next timeline in the 70s, he plays an older Gets Sixsmith. his old makeup on. Yes, and he for looks adorable, <laughs> and I want to have tea with him. Yeah, for uh, Louisa Ray's story, yeah. the third story. Yeah. And she, uh, at some point, sees his letters so that's how she gets yeah, connected so that's to the thread for that Frobisher. yeah so you go from journals to letters <laughs> so Louisa Ray you should talk about Louisa Ray yeah so Louisa Ray that one is taking place in San Francisco it's 1973 uh, she's kind of a a crime reporter or I think she wants to be a crime reporter for like Spyglass magazine or she something. she works for Spyglass yeah uh, which is more of a tabloid oh okay and she wants to write more serious articles yeah, she wants but to of do. course they don't want her to right it's investigative <laughs> reporting so um, it kind of opens up with her she's doing an interview with a guy up in some building uh, she leaves she breaks down in an elevator with Six Smith they kind of bond together and he asks her because he notices her birthmark <laughs> which is another through line throughout the entire yes. the uh, same birthmark that Robert Frobisher has yeah it's uh, all the main characters have the birthmark yes. it's like it looks like a kind of a little shooting star mm-hmm. um, which we can talk about as well because people have many different theories on that yes. um, but 
uh, in particular, like he's talking to her in the elevator, he notices her birthmark and he's asking her about, you know, her work and what she does and she explains it to him and he says, you know, what would you be willing to do to protect a source? And she's like, oh, you know, anything. And it turns out that he has a report on this nuclear power plant, this company that's running it, that he wants to get to her because, long story short, the power plant is being funded by big oil companies. And you're wondering... Big oil. Yeah. You're like, what? well, why would they do that? And it's like, oh, because the reactor's going to have a problem. They want the power plant to explode and go off because that will, you know... No one will trust nuclear. No one's going to trust nuclear power. Yeah. That way, you know, big oil will make all the money. Ta-da! So, um, but unfortunately, our dear friend Hugo Weaving is a lovely assassin in this storyline. Um, I called Bill Smoke. Yes. And he has a great hairpiece. <laughs> By the way, Hugo Weaving is bad in all these storylines, and he just except gets... for except for number two. Oh well, he's yeah. he's, he's a German composer. I thought the implication two. is he's a Nazi, though. I don't think so. Okay, I, I take that back. Then. That Sorry, Hugo. He's not a Nazi. Which is why he is fine with her being Jewish. Gotcha. Uh, but others would not be. Gotcha. I take it back. Um, well, beyond the second one, <laughs> he just gets incredibly worse with each storyline. It's great. Maybe he became a Nazi. Maybe. We just don't know. But um, anywho, in this one, um, they essentially have the company send out an assassin to take out anybody who has copies of these reports. And Six Smith is one of them. They get him. They get him. It sucks. And then they realize that he was trying to reach out to Louisa Ray, so now they're on her trail. Yeah. Yep. So she just has to... Get the report. And get the report, which she does, yep. eventually, yep. through uh, many misadventures. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, through another w- wonderful person with a hairpiece, Tom Hanks, in this one. Yes. Which I really enjoy their scenes together in that. I think it's delightful. Who also is killed. Yes. He's blown up. Yeah. And... Then she also gets to team up with, um, sorry, Keith David. Yeah. Who is, I don't know his character's name. His name's Joe. Mr. Keith David. Yeah. Joe, Joe what? Uh, Joe Napier. Yeah, something like what I thought. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Um, She teams up with this guy who looks like he's been hired by the company, the nuclear power plant company, as kind of the muscle. Mm -hmm. But he quickly reveals to her, like, no, I'm actually like an old war friend of your father's, and I want to help you. By the way, we have an assassin coming after you, so we need to work together to kind of get this shit mm-hmm. situated. So and her story is sort of a classic investigative crime. Yeah, well, crime. I can I know that airport novel is what David Mitchell, the book author, was going for. Yeah. Um, so it's sort of almost intentionally schlocky, mm-hmm. but that means it's definitely one of the least subtle and easier to pin down stories, yeah. since it's pretty much about, as you say, big oil mm-hmm. or you know, corporations. Yeah. With a heavy dose of, of course, environmentalism there, mm-hmm. because that is a very common theme for yes. David Mitchell. Uh, you know, it's it's just easier to, to parse. I don't even know what to really say about Louis Ray. I mean, the only <laughs> thing, other thing you really need to know is um, she does get the report through Sixsmith's niece, I believe. Yeah. And more importantly, or maybe not more importantly, but the, the through line for that one is, you know, she's kind of become this crime reporter, yes. and her neighborhood kid... Um, friend, friend, yes. He grows up. Grows up to write kind of crime novels based off of her. Yeah. And that is the through line for the following story about a publisher who's reading that manuscript. And all you really, yeah, all you really get in the movie for that is he briefly uh, glances it you over. Get a brief glimpse of him looking at it. Yeah. So they they pay a bit more lip service for that one. I think it's not. Uh, it's there. Yeah, it's there, but it's not. You know. 
there's not time to flesh it out really plus from what I recall in the book he doesn't really get a chance to read it anyway right I think he goes back and reads yeah. it at the end but um, yeah so that's that's the San Francisco 70s one and then that brings us into the London 2012 one yeah it's, it was current at the time yeah of because release. the movie came out in 2012 so I never thought about that but of course I guess if, if it's the same time in the book I guess it was actually the near future Mm-hmm. I don't remember if it is the same time in the I book, but for the movie, it's exactly current, 2012. Right. Yeah. Yeah. With Timothy Cavendish played by Jim Broadbent, I think this one is actually one of my favorite storylines, just because it's delightful and ridiculous, um, and probably ha- is the one with the least amount of stakes. <laughs> oh yeah, it's it's the comedy. In terms of impress- like oppression, or I guess we should we didn't even touch upon the oppression in the 70s one. Yeah, I did. Did you? This is a government. It's oh yeah. Sorry, I take that back. And that's corporations. Corporations, oppression, systems, yeah. Anyway, so for this one, the London one in 2012, um, Jim Broadbent plays Timothy Cavendish. He is a publisher, and he's kind of narrating his story about what happened to him uh, and all the events that led up to him essentially getting placed in a... Care home. Yes, against that he his can't will. Leave. Yes. That he can't leave out of. Um, but anyway, so it starts with him. He's a publisher to Tom Hanks's author, who wrote Knuckle Sandwich. It's not doing well. They go to this critics party, and Tom Hanks makes a big stir <laughs> when he throws the critic who trashed his trashed book. his book literally off the balcony and murders him, and then it it starts selling like crazy. The book. And obviously Tom Hanks has to go to jail now, and uh, Timothy Cavendish is kind of enjoying the high life, you know, the bell of the ball after this Mm -hmm. major fiasco, and he's kind of raking the money in. And then uh, Tom Hanks' thug brothers come and demand money, and it's later revealed that, you know, Timothy Cavendish has a lot of debts, and all the money that has been coming in has been used to pay off those debts, and now he's in great danger from... Tom Hanks's brothers, so he is escaping to his brother's house, played by the lovely Hugh Grant, also in old man makeup, and Ben Wishaw as his wife, his wife yes. Georgette, which is great. And so his brother, his brother hates him, tricks him, yes, and tricks him. He's like, okay, you can, I'll put you up at this hotel. And so Timothy's like, awesome, signs into the hotel, wakes up the next day, realizes that he signed himself into a nursing home, and he's not allowed to leave. And he gets introduced to Nurse Noakes, who is played by Hugo Weaving, (laughs) who is amazing. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Mr. Cavendish. (laughs) It's like my favorite part. Um... Anyway, so it's it's essentially a story of him and these other uh, folks in the nursing home attempting a Great Escape breakout. Yes. And they do it. And it's delightful and cheeky and fun. And he does a fun little nod to another storyline, more or less by yelling, Soylent Green is people. <laughs> so, yeah. long story short, he they manage to escape. And he decides, you know, thinking back on his adventures and kind of where his life has led him and the choices he makes, he tries to make another attempt uh, tracking down the love of his life from his youth Mm -hmm. and uh, reuniting with her. Yes. So that's that storyline. Well, obviously, that one is about abuse of the elderly. Yes. Although it is a serious topic. It's definitely the the funny story. The most comedic storyline, for sure. Uh, Just because... Of course, fundamentally, the stakes are lower. You know, all they really have to do is 
try to break out of the compound, mm-hmm. which I they g- do. I guess you could kind of read into it a little bit with the, the very end where they end up at a local pub in Scotland having a good old time, and Nurse Noakes and the crew catches up to them, and then you have all the Scotsmen on their side ready to take them down because mm-hmm. they're essentially just because they're English. Yeah. So I guess that's a, another little side there, but it's great. I, I yeah. really enjoy that one. It's it's lighter in tone, and like I said, not a lot of high stakes, but it does have a nice kind of little lesson of you know being reflective. It, I don't know if it's my favorite, but it's essentially the the easiest to enjoy and the hardest to mess up. I remember yeah. after I read the book, that was the one thing that I think was completely satisfying the first time I saw the movie yeah. because it's just it's very hard to mess up. It's it's really entertaining, mm-hmm. and they cast Tim Broadbent yeah. as Cavendish, which is another very perfect choice mm-hmm. because he is so likable, even though, though he's, he, his character is a little you know pretentious and silly, but kind of you just like him. Yeah, I also wanted to point out because you mentioned this when we were watching it. It is really fun to watch these movies once you've kind of figured out who is who, and you still figure like even small, minor, minor characters um, show up in other stories that you didn't notice before. But it's really fun because you get to see their acting range because Jim Broadbent is playing Timothy Cavendish in this, and um, you have Ben Whishaw playing Georgette in yeah. this one. And, I mean, they don't have many scenes together. They just kind of, you know, say a quick hi to one another, and they're kind of slightly affectionate. Um, But then if you think about that, oh, those are those two actors in that storyline. They're also in, you know, the Robert Forbisher storyline, where they're completely different. Yeah. And it's just kind of fun to think about, oh, you know, in terms of filming and production, one day they're, they're playing these two characters that are complete opposites from the next day when they're playing these other set of characters. So it's just kind of fun to think about of, like, you know, for David Mitchell, it must have been like, oh, this is just a really fun writing exercise of different genres I can mm-hmm. write and how I can piece it together thematically. And it's kind of like the same thing with the actors. It's like, oh, these are really fun characters to play for one movie. Yeah, I like that. It's like an attempt to replicate the experience mm-hmm. of the movie in a different context. It's, yeah. It wasn't just uh, meant to be a meaningful story, you know. It was also kind of for fun, mm-hmm. and that's sort of how they treated the movie, too. Yeah. So that one's good. Next storyline is Neo Soul. Much, much farther in the future. I yes. don't know if there's an exact date it or anything. It says 2144. Well, all right then. Yeah. Very far in the future. And yes, that is in Seoul, except yeah. it is now Neo Soul mm-hmm. because we're in the future. And Seoul's underwater at that point, uh, Yes, right? actually, and our yeah. old Seoul is, is underwater. Yeah. Uh, so this is the story that has... has Duna the Bay. Predo- yeah, predominant role of, of Duna Bay. Much like uh, Ben Wishaw, she has one main role. Mm-hmm. Which makes sense because she is the only actor who is uh, not... She's the only non-native English-speaking actor. So she obviously dominates the the Korean story right. and is less uh, important to the others. But she obviously has to be the center of that story. And... Uh, what do you want to say about that one? Well, who does she play? Oh, sorry. She plays okay. uh, Sonmi uh, four, five, 451, one. Yeah. who is a clone mm-hmm. of many, many other very similar-looking clones, of course. And she works in uh, Papa Song's diner, mm-hmm. which is a... It's not that futuristic. I guess it's just a diner with weird little holograms and things. Yeah, it's it's 2144. You know, yeah. it's a little cooler than what we have now. Yeah. And basically, 
she and all the other workers, clones, they don't have much of a individuality. Mm-hmm. And she sort of starts to wake up, though, more and think about her life and what's going on. And she she gets recruited, in a way, by first one of the other clones. Yuna 939. Yeah, who who has already seemingly awakened herself. Mm-hmm. And then after she is killed trying to escape, mm-hmm. Asami is rescued by uh, well Jim Sturgis, who is playing... Heiju. There you go, Heiju. Mm-hmm. <laughs> who uh, is basically a resistance fighter mm-hmm. against the, you know, obviously we're in the future at this point. Very scary uh, 1984-style government. And basically he, he brings her out of the diner and they go on a little adventure because he's trying to use her as a representative in a way to show the people that these are you know human rights violations essentially mm-hmm. being done to the the clone workers mm-hmm. and so basically they have to they have to show her a bit of the world first and make her understand what's going on mm-hmm. and they want her to make a big statement yeah. basically and she learns that essentially the lie told to all of the workers is that once they've worked for long enough Mm -hmm. uh, they get to go off into I don't remember what they call it but it's basically a little heaven they're supposed to get to go to Mm -hmm. is is the dream that they're fed and she sees that when that happens they all take them to where it's supposed to be and then they just kill them one by one and they liquidize them back into materials to feed the new clones, basically. Mm-hmm. So I like creating this. Yes, people. so it's not great for them. <laughs> no, it sucks. And obviously that inspires her to want to tell people about it. She gets the message out, although Heiju, mm-hmm. rescuer, and all of the other organization members pretty much die in the process. Ending is a bit ambiguous in a way. It's like the resistance has, has been badly damaged, but she still got a message out, and it still is going to have an effect on some of the people that mm-hmm. heard it. Well, particularly her gimmick of her story is that she's being interviewed yeah, post all the events by uh, just Darcy. a guy who interviews people who is played by James Darcy. Yeah, he's the archivist. Uh, yeah, the archivist. And uh, he he himself seems to have had his mind changed a little by the end of their conversation because he can just see that she well, she is you know, sentient, she has individuality, she isn't just a one of many yeah Yeah. and so yeah that's kind of a dark a dark story but i think you know as i was saying the frobisher story is is the most tragic because this one does still leave you with that uh, feeling that there could be hope for change even though she saw me 451 is also executed at the end of the story but she succeeded yeah in part yeah i think it's one of more of those things where when she's talking to him he's like why did you do this and all that jazz and he's like what like who's gonna believe you and she's like someone already has so it's like her purpose kind of has already been fulfilled she kind of knew that she was gonna die once she made this decision to do the speech and while you know the resistance is being attacked so it really short term really sucks because she (laughs) dies and that's tragic but long term you know that her words have a big ripple effect and how the world Mm -hmm. continues um, this is after. obviously one of the more um, action. It's an actiony story. Yes. Like it's in the future, a lot of futuristic uh, chase scenes, mm-hmm. and crazy vehicles and guns and you know supposedly the Wachowskis did this one and yes. that makes sense. Yes. <laughs> because they're having a lot of fun with 
the world. Doing more of a blockbuster within this more cerebral movie, basically. Mm-hmm. If this one definitely has a kind of a very similar shorthand to the production aesthetic with Jupiter Ascending, I feel like. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, they're not, you know, clear-cut parallels, but you can be like, oh, you can tell they're having fun with the technology and calling it the color palette and um, yeah. just how the systems work within the world. Um, there are definitely parts that look a little bit like Jupiter Ascending in yeah, particular. Yeah, where you can tell, like, hey, even though we don't see it, you kind of get this feeling the more you watch it like oh they've really fleshed out the world and the dynamic of like why this is here why this set piece is here like with the tunneling system with the water yeah so, um yeah that one's apparently very uh, slightly different than the book though oh the yeah book the, is... the most different are are two and five mm-hmm. and i'll discuss those because i think that's interesting because mm-hmm. th- there's a reason that it's harder to talk about how the story follows clean cut and and lines up with its themes when you're talking about two and five and it's i think because they had to be messed around a little more to fit into what the wachowskis and tom type were going for Mm -hmm. Uh, but i do think that it works pretty well of course the only thing in my question is that as we say it does leave you with a little hope this one Mm -hmm. but then when you go to the next and last story chronologically, you find the world has been destroyed anyway. Yeah. Uh, so if there was hope, it didn't last very long. Although I think that Sanmi's message is incorporated in a way into the last story. So that does help it to still feel meaningful. Mm-hmm. But we talk about that now. Yeah. Um, so the final timeline one is the big, the big island one. Uh, yeah. It's like 106 winters after the fall. Yeah, so it could be any time, really. Yeah, well, it says the fall. I'm looking at it now because I have to keep track of all these storylines, uh, more or less. Uh, the fall was 2321. All right. I don't know where that information comes from. but Neither do I, but that's what it's saying. So that might not be accurate. The point is it is, is definitely in the future. Yes. We'll pass Neo Soul. But of course, in, in ways, it looks more like the first story. Yes. Because uh, technology has regressed <laughs> yes uh, well it's well for most people yeah it's one, one, i'm i'm unclear there might be a little bit more details in the book but essentially they, they've had to colonize and go other places beyond earth or they're looking for other places because humanity has kind of split off some of them live on this island yeah and have um, regressed to kind of more it's, it's primitive unclear technology. i guess in the movie yeah they, they must have i suppose the idea is yeah that that some people have managed to go elsewhere yeah, because you have Halle Berry's people and or go or off, off world, essentially, yeah. because Halle Berry and her people, who are some of the remaining actually advanced technological people, mm-hmm. are basically trying to send a message to those off world people mm-hmm. so they can be rescued. Yeah. So the world, Earth is not looking great, but I guess you know, some people got out elsewhere and they're doing okay. Yeah. I think probably the idea is that Halle Berry and her technologically minded people mm-hmm. just want to get themselves out of here. Yeah. And along the way, uh, you know, they get tangled up with the setting of, of the sixth one, which is Tom Hanks mm-hmm. and his more primitive the people, valley people, the valley yeah. people who, you know, have regressed to a more of a pre most cultural advances state. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I imagine there are probably lots of groups like that all around the world. Mm-hmm. And Halle Berry and her people are probably planning to leave most of them behind. Yeah. But essentially, as a result of the events of the story. Yeah. Tom Hanks gets to come too, and a lot of the others get to come. But essentially, the story is just that their life is difficult. You know, as you might expect, uh, they have 
warring tribes, and they got some cannibals yeah, they <laughs> around do. the area. Hey, oh, Hugh Grant, we see you. And Halle Berry comes as a representative of her people from across the sea from somewhere else mm-hmm. uh, because there is some sort of old uh, outpost, base, yeah. outpost for sending messages uh, where they live um, at the top of the mountain mm-hmm. nearby. and She uh, needs a guy to get yeah. to the top of the mountain. She has to sort of make a deal with, with Tom Hanks' character because he's very untrustworthy of outsiders yeah. and get him to take her up there without really telling him what she's, what she's actually doing. Right. Uh, but in the process, mm-hmm. uh, as they learn to trust each other, mm-hmm. uh, she does tell him what's really going on, essentially. Mm-hmm. And then also his village is kind of destroyed yeah. by the awful cannibals. Yep. So uh, at the end, all they really have left is each other, and they all go yeah. along, and they yeah. all leave. And that's the main addition, really, to the, the movie, mm-hmm. is that you see uh, as a framing device at the beginning and the end of the movie. You see the old Tom Hanks, and some of his people have you know apparently gotten off worlds, and they're somewhere else now. Mm-hmm. On a different planet, and you know that's that's the last chronological thing. Essentially, that's that's the hope you're left with. Is Earth didn't work out very well in the end after everything that happened to it, mm-hmm. but humanity is surviving. Yeah. So that's 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 running through it chronologically. There's yeah. a lot going on in the sixth story, though. I mean, for one, it's obviously the most inaccessible to mm-hmm. most people because they speak in oh, crazy the true, uh, true. <laughs> crazy uh, primitive made up language thing yeah. that uh that Dave Mitchell made up and that they very faithfully translated for the movie. Yeah. Which they throw you in head first, by the yeah. way. Like it starts with like you said, old Tom Hanks speaking that valley speak language. Yep. And um, I distinctly remember one of the people that I was talking to after they saw the movie. They actually walked out within the first ten minutes because they're like, "Fuck this language." <laughs> well, it helps they're a little that the Halle Berry, although she often talks that way to interact with them, she can also speak, you know, just current English. Yeah. And so she does speak normally a few other times, mm-hmm. which helps when it comes to important plot points that yes. she talks about. Yeah. I think it's interesting because. It essentially ends up working yeah. in the book and the movie mm-hmm. in a different way. I would say in the movie, it's one of the things that benefits the most from seeing it again. Right. You just understand it more. You already know the plot. You can focus on what they're saying. The first time, you're probably going to miss mm-hmm. a lot of words. Yeah. But I think it's interesting because in a book, if you're going to throw people into a dialect like that, mm-hmm. you just kind of understand that once they're a little bit in, they're going to start getting used to seeing the words and figuring it out. Right. And that's very different in a movie. And as I say, I think you, you can't pick it up as well. But yeah. what makes up for it is the fact that if the actors are good enough... They can get it across. Yeah, you can you can understand what they're saying, even if you can't tell what all the words are, basically. Mm-hmm. Which I I did, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, I know I, I definitely didn't get quite a lot of it. Having only read the book once, I know that helped, but still, when I first saw it... There was a lot of, um, I caught one word in that sense, Mm -hmm. but I still had an emotional through line that I could hold on to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, it is also important to note, like, kind of the through line for this one. Oh, I I forgot to mention it. For, uh, in London, Timothy Cavendish, um, he writes a book about his, you know, misadventures with the nursing home, and it gets made into a movie, and, um, Somni451 sees part of that movie. And eventually gets to see all of it, I think. 
Um, and he's at the point where he's saying, like, I will not be treated, like, unjustly. I will not be subjected to criminal abuse. Yes, that, which is great. Um, and, and that kind of inspires her to be like, yes, I should, you know, kind of take this up as well for my cause. So that's kind of her, that's the kind of through line between those two storylines. And between um, Neo Soul's storyline and the final storyline um, after the fall, um, it's interesting because it's kind of a similar thing where Somni 451, her words that have kind of reverberated across um, the world has become essentially a type of a religion for the valley people. Yeah. And it's funny because like one of the main things with uh, Tom Hanks's character in that storyline and Halle Berry is she's trying to have him help her go up to the mountain so she can, you know, send a signal out for help. And I believe it's like the same location where like the resistance makes their stand and they all die. Could be. I'm pretty sure it is because there's a bunch of really old dead bodies in the building. But the moral of that is she's saying like, hey, by the way, I, I really, he's like, you got to tell me the truth. What's going on here? She's like, Somni actually existed and her life is very, very sad and she died. And these are the words that she sent out. Here's the video of her you know, playing her final message out. Yeah. In a way, we, we didn't listen to her, like the old people didn't listen to her then, but yeah. we need to listen to right her now. now so. Yeah. And it's just kind of one of those things where, I mean, her her word gets out and it eventually, you know, it gets interpreted differently in yeah. the same way that like Timothy Cavendish's little <laughs> misadventure is, you know, it's supposed to be light and silly. becomes story. like a grand yeah. integral part of this person's agency to decide, I'm not going to be mistreated anymore. I'm going to trigger this. Um, which is kind of fun to just see how things get interpreted and involved throughout the storylines. Mm-hmm. And it, it also kind of ties nicely into, like, our, our actions are kind of not our own and we don't know how they're going to be, you know, how they're going to kind of ripple effect throughout the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really cool. But yeah, so those are the six storylines, and yeah. they're all completely intertwined, all happening at the same time. And like I said, I just watch this movie, and I still pick up a bunch of stuff. And one of the fun things to pick up is obviously like the casting, um, even with minor characters. Like this time around, the um, one of the nurses at the mm-hmm. nursing home who like checks uh, Timothy Cavendish in is also the lady who is executing all of the clones. And the oh, big yeah. reveal in Neo Soul. And she's kind of doing the same system of oppression. I mean, obviously sense. the impression itself isn't the same, but she's also kind of an instigator in both those storylines. I guess we only lightly touched on it, but of course the oppression in the Neo Soul story is mm-hmm. essentially the most dystopian kind mm-hmm. of, uh, as I said, 1984, mm-hmm. uh, you know, government telling people uh, lies about what's happened in the world and what's happening now and mm-hmm. not letting anyone dissent and you basically get the gist of that from the movie just because the look and the the tropes they're working with mm-hmm. have been used before in movies and most people can just see what they're doing I think yeah there's a really there's quite a lot more detail yeah. uh, in the book and it's even more over you know your classic sort of Oh, Sanmi is uh, getting help from some people and the government takes them away, that sort right. of thing. But you still definitely easily see what sort of tricks they're working with, I think, mm-hmm. immediately from the movie. It's just a style thing. Mm-hmm. And the sixth story, I don't think, it's not really about um, a particular type of um, oppression I as much it's as it's about the culmination of what happens when the whole world breaks down into the most primitive kind 
of conflict mm-hmm. and oppression. Well, I think it's you can see it more of kind of once it's broken down to uh, an us and them that you've reverted to just the most basic of like <laughs> they're cannibals. Yeah. Well, the know? very important quote from uh, that is that is given to Tom Hanks as Dr. Henry Goose in the first story, where he says, "Um, the <laughs> the." I believe it is the weaker meat, the strong do eat. Yeah, uh, which is a recurring thing I remember in the I, book, yeah. and um, obviously that is taken to a literal extreme. A literal extreme with actual cannibals in the mm-hmm. final story. It's like it's like in the first story, civilization is, is <laughs> civilization is a little civiliz- civilized. I was gonna say, mm-hmm. it's a very logical statement. Although you know they're dealing with things like slavery, which is but not civilized. But you know it's. There's this uh, a pretend or a semblance of we're developing. oh we have we have a culture you know mm-hmm. things are you know, well you have this you know sort of fancy uh, man from America and, and Britain and they have this image of, of culture mm-hmm. and you have this very uh, sort of grabbed dog Henry Goose character mm-hmm. who is like saying you know none of that matters I'm just gonna kill you and take your stuff mm-hmm. because you know life is just about taking from people yeah and the the culture sort of maintains itself and you know even gets more built up as you get further into our current time when you know we we hide that kind of thing even more mm-hmm. but by the time you get to the last story chronologically it's they're it's literally sort of broken eating. and and yeah. the the truth of what he is saying is revealed that that's what it boils down to once there's no reason for people to hide their true selves in a way, mm-hmm. uh, and all they have to do is survive. Yeah. So, you know, I think I think it works really well as a ending. It's it's interesting, and in my head, it's just how the story goes now. But I know that the first time I encountered it, of course, it was a bit jarring. Like each story is getting more and more um, futuristic and and sci-fi sort of by the end, mm-hmm. and then suddenly you're you're reading an entirely different kind of story mm-hmm. that isn't about that at all, really. Yeah. But are there any like particular? What's do you have a favorite storyline, a favorite character, or character thread that you really enjoy watching? Um, my my favorites. I'll you know I can tell you my least favorite. Yeah, go and for it. I'll just talk about the movie. Um, yeah. it's probably Louisa Ray's. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's that's a pretty common thing actually. I think I've heard for the book too. It's like I said. You know, he was trying to write sort of a the kind of story that's full of cliches, mm-hmm. and uh, well, that's all you have to say about it. Is that uh, in in the movie it's better, I think, because you have the advantage of it being part of the whole. Plus, you just have some nice actors and all this other stuff, making it feel fun and interesting. Mm-hmm. But on the whole, it is of course the most straightforward and kind of obvious story. It's a story that has been seen before. Mm-hmm. It's just something where when I'm watching the movie, I'm waiting for the beats to play out more than I'm as enthralled by some of the others. But the nice thing about Cloud Atlas as a movie is that it doesn't matter much because you just get these snippets yeah. within the larger whole and other stories come along and uh, in the last hour or so when all the stories are ending, it doesn't really matter if oh, I think Lucere is a little more boring mm-hmm. because so much exciting, so many exciting things are happening all at once. Yeah, I feel like that's the the one advantage of Pod Atlas is I don't think you're ever going to be bored. 
if you're paying, uh, you don't even have to be paying fully attention. <laughs> um, I don't think boredom. I think confusion is going to be more of the, the the emotion there. Uh, the the stories I suppose for me that are that are I like the most. Mm-hmm. I guess I like Frobisher's, and I like um, Cavendish, and I like the last one. I guess I like the even numbered ones. Yeah. Um, because Timothy Cavendish is hilarious, and I I just love everything about that one. Mm-hmm. And it's such a joy to return to it every time in the movie mm-hmm. as almost a break from... It is kind of the breather for more of the headier the stuff. The intense ones. Yeah. Um, Frobisher I, I like for various reasons, one of which is just, you know, I, I like music a lot, and he mm-hmm. is a... Composer. He is a composer and pianist, and I relate to him, I guess. <laughs> uh, but I like also that, as I've said, it's it's such a small personal story. And then the last one is interesting... It's almost more of a, a movie thing. I, I really like how it's done in the movie, uh, despite all the... Uh, one of the main things is that people who only saw Cloud Atlas once don't have much memory of it. Probably think about when they think of Cloud Atlas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the way they talk mm-hmm. in the last one. And Tom Hanks talking about the true true, mm-hmm, which he the does. True. And honestly, I it is silly, but I think it works oddly well the more you see it and... I think Tom Hanks is that, that's his best role oh, in the so movie. Good in it. I think he's he's wonderful in it. Yeah, I really like him as Doctor Henry Ghost in the Pacific. I mean, where yeah, he's I mean he has a lot evil. of fun with that. You can tell he's like Tom Hanks is just having a blast with this. But maybe it helps that he's doing these these bizarre accents and costumes and things because mm-hmm. I mean everyone loves Tom Hanks, but he he tends to play a sort of Tom Hanks character even in the sense that he usually basically looks like Tom Hanks, mm-hmm. and even those subtle aesthetic and sound voice changes in this movie really make it feel different from other roles he's in and that's why I was so impressed I think I really uh, liked his knuckle sandwich author too yeah because I'm like I've never seen so Tom Hanks is like a thug accent is surely like horrible but it doesn't really matter yeah. you know it, it's just about fun and of course I know that's a sticking point for some people with this movie is how do you uh, suspension of disbelief and for me, it's perfectly fine to watch it and enjoy the story and to also think things like, I mean, this is a hilariously bad Irish accent Tom Hanks is doing. He's having a lot of fun. But it doesn't break me out of the movie, partially because I think of it like we were saying. like It's a movie with a message and a meaningful story, but it's also kind of a movie about being a really fun movie to make. Mm-hmm. I don't have a problem with those two things at once, but I know for some people, just the accents, the makeup, the mm-hmm. just the sheer fact that they're playing more than one character, the actors, mm-hmm. in itself is enough to basically ruin the mm-hmm. the immersion, ruin the feeling that you're actually watching a cohesive story. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's just not the kind of movie that can work for everyone, I don't think. That's yeah. uh, so I like this uh, Roger Ebert review he did yeah Alice. which i will link everybody up to it's great okay, yeah i thought you were linking just because he he basically says something like that just that like i i recommend that you the reader see this movie because you might not like it but i think there's such a chance that if you do You're like you'll it. really yeah. like it and i think that captures it really well it's it isn't like anything else and if any bit of it works for you, it's probably worth seeing because mm-hmm. you will remember that bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so I those are the ones I like. I, I like them all, though, and 
after you tell me what you like, mm -hmm. I might talk about uh, some of the differences in some of those between mm -hmm. the book, too. Yeah. I like, um, gosh, I, I think, like, I really actually enjoy the, the Timothy Cavendish one. Of course. <laughs> um, just because uh, Jim Brabant is just so great, and I love him. But I, I just love the idea of, um, like we said previously, like, his story doesn't, in terms of the actual plot, doesn't have a huge impact on the rest of the world. Or at least you wouldn't think it would, but it kind of does because it actually bleeds into Neo Soul. Um, but I love the characters in it. I love Mr. Meeks. I just feel for him. He's the really old guy who who has a very difficult time talking, and um, he never says anything except for what it's like. No, 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 no. Yes. And then finally, when they're planning says, their escape, or he says, "I know, I know, I know." And then uh, when they're planning their escape, he finally says, like, don't leave me. And it's just, um, I think there's a lot of good character moments in it. I really enjoy um, Hugo Weaving as Nurse Noakes as well. That never fails to amuse me. He's the most intimidating woman I've ever seen. <laughs> um, but yeah, I like it. It's delightful. And I do really like the fact that, you know, it's played by, um, it's a storyline where the main character is an older person. And it's not someone who's on a journey of self-discovery in the normal kind of typical way that all the other kind of yeah. younger characters are. I really like the fact that, you know, he makes mention of, you know, crossing the same tracks over <laughs> and over again and wondering, like, how the hell did I end up here? And it's nice to think that, you know, the gentleman of his age can, you know, still have an adventure and can still kind of make up for the things that he's done um, and fix it. Uh, I really like that storyline. I actually do like the Louisa Ray one just mm -hmm. because I'm a, I like action movies. And I, I, I'm not like a huge conspiracy movie fan, but I like the, the idea of them like we're uncovering a plot and yeah. something toward is going on. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I do like all of them. I don't think I have a, a least favorite. Um, it's maybe probably the, easier if you've read the book because in the yeah. movie it's just, you know, they're all there. They're all intertwined, yeah. Um, part of my, half of my Louis Ray opinion is probably just from the book from itself. From the book. Well, I mean, and that's totally fine too. Like, I get it. It's It probably plays a little bit better on screen mm -hmm. as a more of generic action um, than it would in a book. But, um, I don't know, probably the Pacific Islands. It's hard because it's like there are moments in each one that I really, really love. But it really is about the whole. Yeah. Uh, I was thinking that's what's so impressive interesting about it, about it yeah. is it, you can't take any part of it out it, it doesn't it's not that they only work because they're in the hole right it's just that it's different and when you really think about it you know this is just some of them are more dramatic yeah you got your you know <laughs> rebellion against the evil government and um soul yeah and also your well, really, that's the only one in a way because no, the last I mean they're fighting the big nuclear plant in the seventies. It's just not yeah, as okay, that's that's the other one. Yeah, but but even the last story, theoretically, you know, it's really just about all this stuff has already happened. You know, it's mm -hmm. really just about here's a few people and they're they're trying to get out, mm -hmm. and then the rest of the story is like here's a guy who's trying to stop himself from being poisoned and save one guy. Mm -hmm. A uh, composer who is basically just dealing with his own little personal, personal demons. demons. Yeah. And um, a guy who's trapped in an old folks' home. Mm -hmm. And yet, when you stick all these together in the way it's done in the movie, it feels like these are the biggest stories in the world. Yeah. <laughs> Even though some of them are so, not. so small. I yeah. mean, 
the way it's edited together, it makes... It's insane. Um, the transitions are insane well, in It this makes movie. Jim Broadbent, Timothy Cavendish, and his yeah. buddies, yeah. and breaking out of the old folks' home. Just as like, exciting. Yeah, it feels like such an enormous moment. You know, it's just a, a car breaking through a gate compared to enormous firefight in the neo soul mm-hmm. <laughs> and yet it feels just as big um, a lot of that I guess we should also say is the music mm. because it has a wonderful score one of the, the best I've ever heard mm-hmm. and some prominent well one one main prominent theme but also the theme that is the Cloud Atlas because the Cloud Atlas is, uh, is a musical piece that Frobisher writes the Cloud Alice sextet, because it's for, you know, for six, like the book. Yeah. Yeah, it's very mm-hmm. clever. clever. Um, and Cloud Atlases do actually exist. All right. Yeah, it's an actual <laughs> thing. I had to look this up, because I was like, what is it? And yeah. there is a whole explanation from the author of, like, why he named it that. But so they, they feed that in, of course, mm-hmm. um, to all the stories, and more than anything, really, that helps tie them together, because mm-hmm. you're hearing the same music for all these different people so it makes it feel like their issues are equivalent essentially mm-hmm. and I w- want to give them credit honestly just for actually trying to write it I mean the main theme of the movie is not the Cloud Alice mm-hmm. but they do have it the whole thing like it plays in the credits and it bur- parts of the plays in the movie mm-hmm. I just think it's really bold to read that uh, something is supposed to be like the most lovely beautiful piece of music ties all this together and then try to actually come up with it yourself yeah <laughs> because 99 percent of the time that's done falls flat in its face in like movies and tv when you know character is supposed to be a great painter or something mm-hmm. which means they have to make a great painting exactly <laughs> or even like a good that? writer yeah yeah, yeah that's actually right the weirdly the thing they're worst at writers mm-hmm. is making writing that sounds like good writing yeah no it's good do you have a favorite um actor in this I want to give the MVP, MVP award to Hugo Weaving. Of course. Just oh, because. surprise, guys. Surprise. <laughs> <laughs> because there is no joy as much as I get when Nurse Noakes is around. Uh-huh. Um, and he also gets another excellent role as, as old Georgie, who we haven't even mentioned. No, we haven't. But the, the hallucination devil figure that talks to Tom Hanks in the sixth story, yeah. where he is dressed even more ridiculously than he he's is like in Nurse He's like a frog in a top hat. Yes. It's amazing. And, and he's scary as hell, too. He is just hamming it up so much, and he's having a lot of fun. And, you know, he has he has good roles in, in most of the others, too. Mm-hmm. And and he plays a nice role. But the fact, I think, that he has two that are so endlessly entertaining to me mm-hmm. is a big thing for him. I did say, of course, uh, I do love Tom Hanks in the last one. Yeah, and I do love Ben Shaw playing for Obershire mm-hmm. and also playing the <laughs> American record store in the 70s clerk who <laughs> listens to his own music when he was Frobisher and talks about how great it was yeah I love that uh, which is ridiculous uh, just... he's yeah he's pretty great I think you know he just doesn't have as much to do yeah uh, and of course Tom Hanks is in a way carrying a majority several, several parts yeah. of the movie I mean he's Not playing more it. than one main character unlike the other ones I mean I think he he might be the only actor that is a main character in two storylines He's what in the, the he's main character main in the first and the last one. In the yeah, in the first yeah, he would count as a main character in the first one. He's important in Louis well, Ray too. Yeah. Yeah. I guess he's not a main character in the first one, but he's definitely and he's the main antagonist 
like physical antagonist. Yes, definitely, definitely more prominent than anyone else, which yeah. makes sense because he is Don Hicks. Yeah. Uh, and I guess what I was trying to say earlier, in a way, if I was going to, you know, give it to him as the best, mm-hmm. because ju- just that Tom Hanks is not the kind of movie he normally does. Yeah. And he was actually very important to supporting the movie and helping it get made, too, mm-hmm. and, and encouraging other actors to stay attached when they were having issues. Yeah. Pre-production. Oh, yeah, this thing. Took, um, it's, like, w- the most expensive, like, independent film, I think, ever made. The Wachowskis mm-hmm. donated their own money. They got the German government to donate money yeah. for it. It's insane. But you could tell how much fun he's having in some of them, but also that he always takes it seriously. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's the kind of movie that someone like him would not have to take it seriously as he does. Yeah. Although I do want to say also, because we've barely talked about it at all, mm. that I guess the, the the most surprising performances in this movie should go to Hugh Grant. I was going to say that. Yeah, who, much, it. much more than Tom Hanks, <sighs> you know. is took it from <laughs> me. I was going to say that was my favorite. I think he's yeah. vastly underrated. Well, he's doing stuff that he never, ever gets to do. Yeah. And much even more than Tom Hanks. It's mm-hmm. like he's having, he's having too much fun. Yeah. Oh, I that was. Oh, I'm so annoyed. Oh, you talk <laughs> about his different aspects. That no, you I like. love him because he is the one through line that he just gets consistently worse and worse. Like he ends up as a cannibal. Like there's, it's it's insane. Um. So he goes from Hugh Grant goes from. Uh, He's a reverend who supports slavery and okay. is clearly a misogynist. He's, he's not in two. No, I don't believe he's in. T- oh no, he's a he's a hotel guy trying to kick out um, Frobisher in the very beginning when he's with Six oh, yeah. Smith. Yeah. But that's not really a big role. Um, Still mean. He's uh he plays Lloyd Hooks in San Francisco. He's like the guy who's kind of the face of the company for the nuclear reactor and makes yes. the really obvious. Cringe joke about women's lib. Women's lib stuff. And he's like, hey, this is, if they all looked as lovely as you, Halle Berry. And you're like, oh my gosh, not great. Um, uh, and then, of course, he is. He plays. Timothy Cavendish's brother. Yes, in old man makeup. And, like, it took me a solid minute to be like, holy shit, that's actually Hugh Grant. Yeah. And he's just, you know, cackling away as he undermines his brother. Um, who you can feel just in their relationship and the few scenes they have together that, like, they've done some bad shit to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he goes from that to uh, in Neo Soul, he is the guy who owns the oh, yeah. Papa Song. Um, and he is. And he's got ex- some crazy makeup on. Yeah, he's exploiting um, Somni 451's friend who is kind of already actualized before her. Mm-hmm. He likes to eat soap and abuse his co his um his coworkers his employees. Soap is the the drug made out of the clones that they take to go to sleep yep. and eat. Yep. And he's just disgusting. He likes eating feet, not literally, you know, <laughs> yes. but literally in the next story. Yes, line, and then he becomes he a likes, cannibal. And he becomes a cannibal. And I just think I'm like, it's a beautiful array of performances. And I don't. And they're. They're not obviously as big or as meaty, no pun intended, as like Tom Hanks's mm-hmm. um, roles. Yeah. But I'm just like, I love the fact that Hugh Grant is in this movie, and I don't think people really recognize him for it. And they should, because he's doing some really awesome work, because he's getting not just one role, but like multiple roles that are vastly different than his kind of wheelhouse. And it's nice to yeah. see that, like, yeah, he can actually do it. And I think it's fun, because... Um, I was reading up on it, like the different actors' experiences, because all of them were all like, we loved working on this, we really wish it had done better type of a thing. And then they were talking to Hugh Grant. He was just like, 
it's really, really, he loved working with the Wachowskis. He's like, mm-hmm. it's great to work with them and Tom and know that you're in A, such great hands, but B, like on top of that, you're working with people who like genuinely love cinema and it's kind of infectious and it makes mm-hmm. you want to do like all the different crazy roles they're asking you to do. Um, I'm totally paraphrasing, by the way, but that's <laughs> the gist of what I got out of that, of his reaction to working on the yeah. film. Um, I, I think... I just really enjoy Hugh Grant. I think he's particularly mm. underrated, and this this definitely proves it. So. And they're all they're all good. You know, I should say, um, you know, I, I like Halle Berry a lot in it too. Mm-hmm. And Halle Berry is not someone I've really seen that much of, or really was. I mean, I know she she did win that Oscar. Yes. But she is not known for being in that many movies. Of course, recently at least, where she really gets a really good role yeah and i think she does a great job and fits in really well yeah. uh, i mean i really like her as louisa ray i love her as the uh the guy <laughs> in ESO. <laughs> yes she plays a, a very very old doctor With who takes a head off five times bigger than her own yeah who takes off the uh the collar on somni yeah. 451 um, like the makeup in this is insane and that's something we should probably touch upon uh, there was the controversy like we said earlier of all these actors playing different roles and races mm-hmm. and there was definitely a controversy oh, yeah. we'll about, about um, yellow face and people saying that there is a double standard because they're saying hey you're using non-Asian actors to play these Asian yeah. roles but you didn't do blackface which thank you for not doing blackface <laughs> but it's a double well, standard and that's not okay I don't want to um comment too much on question of just whether it's okay yes you know it's like it's not not my job but the one thing i want to say is that um that i think is, is sometimes overlooked is that uh it's well well and that some people don't know because it's more of a presence in the book the first most important thing is that um the elite of the Korean society. In Neo-Soul. Yeah, in Neo-Soul. Are supposed to have basically taken to excessive plastic surgery and... Modifying yeah, themselves. Yeah, m- body modification. And basically don't look quite like normal humans anymore. And that is what a lot of our, our people who, you know, theoretically are in Yellowface are actually looking like. I mean, there's, there's a reason why... Uh, that's Jim Sturgis and um, Hugh and Grant. Hugo Weaving and, and Hugh Grant, Grant in particular. And James Darcy, yeah. And James Darcy um, are are various white guys who are uh, playing Koreans technically. There's a reason that they look so much less human uh, than some of the other makeup jobs in the movie. Like it's not that they just failed; it's that they're uh, you supposed know they're to supposed look to modified. look rather bizarre. Yeah. Um, and the most important thing, really, in relation to that, is that they are also all playing um members of the the elite class even um jim sturgis even though he's a resistance fighter you know he's he's from the higher class the higher class Mm -hmm. and uh our our protagonists are um are oppressed people Mm -hmm. are played by duna bay and um who's the other korean actress do you know oh let me look i think it is you can look into that but um, oh i do not know how to pronounce her name well, don't worry about it right now. I'm so sorry. In but she she's the other, you know, important clone, and and both of our clones are are, are workers are played by uh, actual Koreans. And they don't have any any, uh, the, any yeah. makeup or prosthetics or anything. Yeah. And I think that's that's on purpose. You know, mm-hmm. they're they're the protagonists. They're the actual 
good people and their oppressors are basically all of these white actors that have crazy weird faces because of all the stuff they, yeah they, they look more inhuman yeah and um i think just it's clearly on purpose if you know anything about the Wachowskis for one but that that makes it clearly have a pointed reason for being there basically yeah i mean you could whether say whether or not it's right or wrong is up to you well, I think essentially you could you could say it's right or wrong, but the thing that's incorrect is to suggest that like the Wachowskis were were scared of blackface, but they thought we can do this, this will be fine. It's like that's not the reason, you know. It's because they thought this is a way we can do this that also plays with our multiple actors switching thing, and also is a little bit more faithful yeah. to the book. And there's no there's no reason to do it in any other story. Why would you you know? Mm-hmm. Why would you do that? They already have plenty of actors to fill those roles Mm -hmm. uh there's there's no reason to do it unless there's a point to it Mm -hmm. yes i can see why the controversy is there um i think they did also make a point of saying hey we do have a bunch of like all the actors are playing all different races it's not like we're having particular actors of one race play another race and um i don't know it's and i don't know if people really talk about it much anymore yeah because to be honest a lot of um, people I've seen talk about that talked about it like when the trailer came out and they hadn't actually seen the movie yet anyway. Yeah. Uh, it's obviously a bit different with context. Mm-hmm. But makeup and prosthetics, it all looks very good. Yes. Crazy. Talked about that. Yeah. I was going to talk about the some of the differences, I guess. Yeah, go for it. Um, which is relevant to especially Neo Soul. Mm. Uh, which, although I didn't say it was one of my favorites in the movie, I do like it quite a lot and I like it more than in the book because it's uh, one of the only ones that I don't necessarily love in the book Mm -hmm. because essentially that 1984 style story Mm -hmm. and the book is very faithful to that idea and essentially at the end of her story Sanmi451 finds out that the resistance itself was just set up by the oppressive government to create false hope for the people essentially you know to siphon out the hope somewhere mm-hmm. and that she is meant as an empty figurehead I do think it's meant to leave you with a bit of a feeling of she may have still had some sort of effect inadvertently even if that's not what they were going for mm-hmm. but the overall feeling is definitely much more like even when you try to fight back against these it people, yeah. they'll still shut you down, which yeah. obviously fits more in a way into the then we go to the next story and everything is bad right. uh, setting. But I just don't like it in the book, and I think half of that is just because it it feels unoriginal. It, it's just been done. It's been done before in 1984, um, and that was probably the best it's ever that, been done. That's what I like to say, is, like, no one needs to do it again. Yeah. Like, it, it's been perfect. You can do it again, but it just won't ever... I don't think it's ever going to it's have going to the same as, impact yeah. as Good. the big twist in 1984. And because things do not end up going well anyway mm-hmm. in our sixth story, it's preferable to me just to leave it with more hope mm-hmm. um, and that's of course uh, the other big changes are just in the the second story just because there's a, a lot of stuff that there's um, an extra character right yeah there's a lot of there's a lot going on with Frobisher he has an affair with the uh, daughter of the composer and he's in love with her and that contributes to his 
bad feelings because uh, he feels like he made a mistake and all this stuff. And they don't even have the daughter in the yeah. movie. Not for time or for whatever reason. I think that they felt it would center the story more to have less characters and probably felt it would center the story more to make it more about uh, the oppression on him and not just his own issues. Mm-hmm. Because I think that's the big change of the movie is to, to create a more centralized theme. Mm-hmm. The book is a little bit more of an experiment, you know. It's it's this the theme I guess is more about what Doctor Henry Goose says about the strong and the weak up and then preying on them. Mm-hmm. And that's certainly very prevalent across all of the stories, but it's twisted into being more about specific uh, forms of oppression in the movie, mm-hmm. which makes sense. Uh, that's the kind of thing the Wachowskis mm-hmm. have made all their movies about, in a way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think we can say all of them. We talked about that before. Yeah, yeah there's them. it's it's there. It's definitely there. You can it's read it. It's always present. Yeah. And, um, it's a little bit more prevalent in some than others. The, the story, it's it's nicely subtly done with, with Frobisher, because it's not like the story is twisted into a way where they're saying it's actually, oh, he's gay and that makes things difficult so he commits suicide you know that's mm-hmm. not the story yeah but removing the daughter just makes it more about that it's I guess. streamlined it a little more yeah um, than than anything mm-hmm. and i understand why they did it and i think that's also why the change occurs in neo soul because essentially there's already a tragedy in in the second one mm-hmm. in the second story and they don't need two that are just pitch black endings, basically. That's that's relevant too to the the pacing of the movie, mm-hmm. because in the book, since it it goes backwards at the end, you get this um this rather depressing ending to Sonmi for Heavens. Yeah. And then after that, you get the ending to Frobisher, which is the penultimate ending, and it's really sad. But then you're sort of lifted up with the end of. Adam uh, Ewing's story, because, you know, his story is the one with the the message Mm -hmm. that uh, it's possible for some sort of change to occur. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it makes sense, pacing-wise, to do that. In the movie, Mm -hmm. I don't remember the exact order of how all the endings play out, Yeah. but essentially, you're getting the ends of all of them around the same time. Mm -hmm. Uh, It would just mess with it, I think, too much to... um, have both of those be that tragic, especially because the um, the speech of Somni gives is sort of used as a voiceover bridge for a lot of the ending bit mm-hmm. about uh, about hope continuing and about people uh, being able to uh, find well with the sort of character reincarnation theme of the movie about right. people being able to find themselves in future places even if things didn't work out in the present right and it's very nice and beautiful and works well in the montage with the movie and Mm -hmm. you just can't do that if you undercut her at the end right so to to make her emblematic of the movie that way you have to change it and that is actually one of my favorite parts is when um, the archivist is asking her like oh, just so you know, the guy that you kind of fell in love with that helped you ex- uh, escape, Jim Sturgis in that storyline, he's died, and he asks her, like, something mm-hmm. along the lines of, like, heaven, like, do you believe in it type of a thing, and she's like, I view it as 
a door opening and him on the other side type of a deal and it's beautifully shot because it you know she's explaining it and it's literally voicing over the moment where in the Pacific Islands storyline the very first story it's him coming home to his wife and his wife has been cast mm -hmm. as Duna Bay so they kind of kept them as a couple throughout the storyline yeah. whenever they could they're even I believe a couple in the San Francisco storyline and the picture they are the oh. parents of um, Six Smith's niece Interesting. yeah so they're always paired together and it's kind of fun again to have th these actors kind of have kind of a similar beats throughout the story because then you can kind of mix mm. and match these moments and it's a nice thought to be like oh even though this didn't technically chronologically work out for them in this yeah. storyline it's nice to see them get quote unquote reunited even though it's in the past that's the big the big connection the big <laughs> final one i think and yeah. you could probably talk for hours about many wonderful connections and edits and things mm -hmm. that's what we were saying every time you watch the movie you just see more yeah you realize oh like you you know you've seen it a few times you you know who plays who yeah but you just realize things like oh when that cut to that that's because that. this person was in both scenes yeah or that sort of thing yeah or, or because they're about the same topic yeah even things that that don't make sense with the information you have say 40 minutes into the movie once you know something from later you realize Mm-hmm. What the edit was for. Yeah. One of my favorite ones that I actually caught this time, and it made me so angry because it was so good, was um, it's the Timothy Cavendish storyline. He is on the train headed to his brother's, mm -hmm. reminiscing about his first love and wondering yeah. whatever happened to her. And he goes actually to the house where he had this, you know, little uh, tryst with her that mm -hmm. went horribly wrong. And he's like, oh, I wonder if she's still there. And he's like, what would I do if I just knocked on this door? What if she, this, she still lived in this house? And so he's looking at the door, and then the next shot is Susan Sarandon opening the door in the sixth storyline. She's the abbess in the mm -hmm. Valley People with Tom Hanks in the future future. Yeah. And you think, oh, that's kind of a weird cut the first time you see it. Or it's not even a weird cut, it just doesn't register. But after you've seen the movie, you're thinking, oh, that's kind of a beautiful transition because he's looking at the door thinking I hope like she would open it and she technically does because it's played by the same actress yeah, Susan Sarandon she, she, you don't see that she is playing that woman until later right uh, yeah and that's a perfect example because you have to watch the movie twice to get it yeah and so um, it's just like and it's other things like that where they're made just made for rewatching yeah and even um like some of the locations like I'm pretty sure their nursing home is the same house used as Vivian's house mm -hmm. with the composer with Robert yeah Frobisher. You were talking about um, the out-of-order mm -hmm. of the relationship between Jim Sturgis and Duna Bay's mm -hmm. different characters, characters yeah. which I think is important to the only other really, the last thing I wanted to say really about this movie on the whole, mm -hmm. which is the way that um, it doesn't need to be interpreted. Um, As reincarnation. Well, I was going to say... Uh, I don't know what the best way to put it is factually or uh, like by trying to work out the details. Basically, I, I guess that's it. It's not a movie that needs to be unlocked and you figure out what everything means. And I think um, some approach to that way, and certainly if, if you get something out of that, yeah, that's cool. But I think the fact that like they, those two characters, um, get to be back together in the first story chronologically. They mm -hmm. die awfully in the fifth story chronologically. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and if one was trying to analyze the movie as a chronological story of these reincarnating characters, they might think this is some sort of tragedy. Yeah, it doesn't work. But of course, work. the movie presents it as like, isn't it lovely they got to see each other again? Yeah. Because it isn't really about a linear story through time, you know, mm-hmm. as much as it's just about I think the way just the stories interact. Stories, yeah. yeah. And, and the same thing applies to, you know, trying to map a perfect line for like, is Tom Hanks is Tom Hanks evil is and then he's good at the end, but in the middle he's kind of like back and forth. Right. Or that's um, why the only one that I think is kind of a good through line is maybe Hugh Grant. I mm-hmm. mean, it's you can debate. He's always like, bad. He's always bad. Yeah. It's just to different degrees, and obviously some degrees are yeah. a little worse than others. Like, and that's not even chronological. Yeah. But it's it's a funny thought to think like, oh yeah, he mm-hmm. ends up as a cannibal. Just like with with Hugh weaving, like oh he's bad, he's bad, except for that one time he's not. Like yeah. what does that mean? It yeah. Doesn't always necessarily mean anything besides they wanted to give him a role in every story yeah uh you know some of this is for fun some of this is for the joy of like (laughs) doing theater in a movie sort Mm -hmm. of like people playing multiple roles all this Mm -hmm. crazy stuff and and that also i do think applies to things like reincarnation and specifically the 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 shooting star the comet um birthmark birthmark because our main characters all have it and that's something that really p- some people get hung, hung up on. Mm-hmm. And um, I d- it's not that important to me. Uh, I don't consider it that necessary to the movie or anything. I think it's it's a nice symbol. You know, and the movie uses it at the end. Uh, they they see it in the sky. Mm-hmm. Like, like more just like a symbol of... Connectivity. Uh, connectivity and time mm-hmm. passing and all of this stuff happening at once uh i don't think that needs to mean that this is the same person reincarnated or anything like that i think it's just a good visual indicator of and again you can interpret this any way you want but for me personally i also always thought of it as like oh this is a marker to of who's the main character in the story because they're the ones that always have this is a marker of a person who's going to affect change into yeah. this world yeah. whatever that may mean mm-hmm. and because if you take it a little bit more literally like oh this is a reincarnation of just one person through mm-hmm. multiple people and multiple storylines and it's a birthmark i know some people get hung up on the idea of like duna bay's character somni uh, 451 she has it um she receives the mark when she, her collar gets taken off like it's kind of an after effect uh, of the the collar. I always off. thought it was under there, but she couldn't see it until they took it off. Oh, it might be that too. <laughs> I don't know, but I always thought you know it's like a welding thing. They got. I was it trying off. to remember all them last time we talked about this. Yeah. I, I never can. Um, uh, I know that you see, um, Robichaux right away. Yeah. It's like on his thigh, butt something. Yeah. And um, there's that one that gets revealed under the collar. Um, right. You don't see Tom Hanks in the last stories until he has shaved his. Because he's old. Cause he, yeah, and he got injured, I think. Or, yeah. And so you see that it was under his hair all along. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you remember Louisa? Louisa's on, is her, on, her, on shoulder. her shoulder. Yeah. Um, Adam in the Pacific Islands. I think it's got to be like on, near his, like on his torso somewhere. Yeah, you must see it when he's sick. When he's or, sick, yeah. But I can't place Timothy Cavendish at all. I don't know where his is. But the he does have it, though. thing that's worth I noting. I think it's on his leg. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. I think because he goes to the bathroom. Is the um, in the book, mm. Tom Hanks in the sixth story doesn't even have the tattoo. Oh um, really? Halle Berry does. Oh interesting. Uh, or I should say whatever her character's name is. Um, Birthmark, yeah. Uh, Mar- Marinim, mm-hmm. yeah. 
Um, and he's still the you know he's still the viewpoint character. Right. But it's just in the book, it's not as important that our protagonist is the one with the birthmark or something. Right. It's almost just more of a symbol of uh, you know something's happening. Uh, mm-hmm. This story is connected to the other stories. Well, like we were right. saying. Um, or maybe she is the main character, and we're just seeing her through him. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I was—I should have said that before. I also really like Halle Berry in the last story. She's really good in it. And I think are. she is notably different, you know, than in as Louisa Ray. Yeah. Um, yeah. They're yeah, they're great together good. in that one because they get to be together a little bit in in Louisa Ray because Tom. Yeah, shows they have up. the best scenes together. Um, but you know, they spend pretty much all of the last story together, and they do great. Yeah, yeah. This is a this is a tricky movie. This is a very difficult movie. Um, I still don't know how it got made, but I'm I'm so happy it did, and it is exciting because you get um, like we said, they directed it with Tom, and yes. he will be directing a lot of Sense Eight episodes for them in the future, and you will get Duna Bay in Sense Eight yes. as well. And Tom also um was one of the composers. Uh, there are like three or maybe even four composers that work together, and I I can't say all of them. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh. Yeah, he was involved, and he does the music as well mm-hmm. for Sense8. So, um, pretty consistent yeah, collaborators. Yeah, got some MVPs from from now on. Mm-hmm. I should also note because uh, I think we did mention it in Fever Vendetta. Um, the reason why they did Cloud Atlas is because they saw Natalie Portman reading it on set <laughs> in her downtime for V for Vendetta, and they asked her about it. And then uh, they actually thanked her in the credits for yes, this movie. Yes, and we know, I believe, that they wanted they her wanted originally. They wanted her Somni 451. Yes, which would have totally torched my whole theory about of upper and lower class Koreans versus white people. Thing. Yes, um, but because <laughs> they, I think, I think she was pregnant and she couldn't do it. Mm. But I could be wrong on that. But either way, she she had to turn it down. Yeah. But I mean they that, still that wouldn't have been her. right, I don't think. No. Like they, they do want to keep working with her, because the next one we're talking about, they wanted her in Jupiter Ascending as well. Hmm. wanted her as Jupiter. Oh. Yeah. Well, it's very logical when you think about it, why they would have thought of her for Somni. Yeah. Because, like, in Beer Frendetta, she is playing... It's a very similar character Yeah, a woman who, who yeah. learns the truth of corruption and... And decides stands to up do against something it. about it, yeah. But, um... But realistically, like that, you know, that should be a Korean rule. Yes, absolutely. I think, th- and plus, they got Duna Bay, yeah. and she's amazing, <laughs> and I love her, and I'm so excited that they continue to work together in Sensei because she's amazing in that. So, so yes. this is, I think, clearly the most ambitious Chasky movie. Hands down. It helps that they have a book to work from, but yeah. some would say that made it harder because mm-hmm. it was considered unadaptable mm-hmm. oh we can also say that uh author david mitchell yes uh quite liked the movie yes. to the extent that he ended up helping out a little bit on sensei as well he actually has a cameo yes and, and he appears <laughs> well he has a cameo in cloud atlas as well oh does he's he? one of the freedom fighters in neo soul i had to look that up because i did i can't well, tell if you can find him yeah viewers, you were better than us i, I have not yeah uh, but he is very obvious in Sensei because yes. they basically devote a whole scene to talking about how he is cool, yes. which is it's little in season blatant. two. Yeah, but it's great. Um, yeah, we should also note that um, yes, he liked the movie, but he specifically is very happy with the casting of uh, Tom Hanks, Halle Berry, and Jim Broadbent to the point where he said like he doesn't really know how he pictured the characters prior to it. Interesting. Yeah, he's just super happy with it. Which Especially is because, I forgot, that was one other thing I was going to say, mm-hmm. uh, when you're talking about how um, Jim Broadbent is the older character, yes. um, and the other is younger, because um, 
Tom Hanks is obviously not that young, and in um, the book, uh, Zachary, in the last story, his character, is, I think, like 16. Oh, really? <laughs> but in the movie, they just made him Tom Hanks They're instead. Like, yep, it's going to be Tom Hanks' age. Yeah. That's really funny. Which is also interesting, of course, because I think, from memory, I'm mm. assuming, uh, there isn't really a romance element, which there's definitely a little more of in the movie between Tom Hanks and Halle Berry. Yeah. Because they're like, you know, like closer in age. past, yeah. Um, as opposed to Mr. 16-year-old Zachary in the book. Mm. That's funny. But that also just ties into the fact that they added that framing device of old Tom Hanks, which I guess is the other difference I didn't mention mm-hmm. before, uh, but which I do like. Uh, it rounds it out. I think, to be honest, it plays a large part in possibly putting some people off the movie because you start immediately with Tom Hanks speaking old, that true talking, true. Yeah, talking in yeah. the true-true language. Um, and that is a bold thing to start with. But uh, with some time to reflect, it's it's nice just because, as you said, and I know from reading it, um, the book does end with the Ewing, Ewing story. And, with the um, multitude of drops yeah. line, Yeah, and they, they still great. include that at the end. It just doesn't land as well in a movie as the very end, I think. It's nice to end the movie with this epilogue of... Um, there's Earth right there. Uh, of a, you know, a chronological epilogue yeah. of uh, this is how We've things ended might up. be. Yeah. yeah, instead of just a thematic point. I'm not saying you couldn't do it, but I like the way they did do it. Mm-hmm. So... I also don't know how to... Oh, I should note very quickly. Um, again, we briefly touched on this, since this is, you know, obviously Wachowski watch, but they did not direct it alone. Yeah. Uh, this is, I think, like, one of the few movies where three directors all got credited. Because, you know, you have, like, some gr- directors do, like, uncredited work. Oh, yeah. Um, and it's mainly just, like, one main director. All three of them get credit. Um, and I believe that the Wachowskis are... Um, mainly responsible for the first story which is the pacific islands and then the two futuristic ones and then uh tom is in charge of like timothy cavendish Mm -hmm. louisa ray and um the robert forever sure that's what they say and i think it's probably sort of true uh more true than it is in the sense where people talked about how supposedly different directors um Mm -hmm. handle different uh, cities and locations yeah. in Sensei, and yet when they talked about it, they kind of said, "Well, like in a way, we were all involved." Well, that's also with Cloud Atlas is like yeah. those are the ones they kind of did the most on, but they said that like if they were in the same location, all three of them would work together. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's it's not that difficult to credit three directors. It's just that obviously it's a very unusual don't. thing. Yeah. I've heard though that um, there are actually pretty strict rules, and like it's extremely hard to credit more than one writer mm, yes like they don't you don't even let you do that really um it's it's a, unless you're like a team it's one of those things where you have to get credit for um if you originally wrote the characters even if you didn't write a single thing for the sequel you have to get credit a writing credit for it um i think it's also a contractual thing so do not quote yeah. us on this at all guys well obviously three directors uncommon yeah. and yeah. only really relevant because they were often working separately as well you wouldn't really need it for a (laughs) more straightforward movie probably but uh no i love that and i love that they are like we said they're going to bring back a lot of the same people you'll see them pop up again but um yeah cloud atlas is good it's there's a lot of meat (laughs) there to chew off very different from our next outing oh our final film outing so far which in a way is just as ambitious 
it's just that it's like squished into a smaller frame. Mm. I would also argue, and this will go more into that discussion, that the two leads are not in the same movie as everybody else. Yes. <laughs> so, but this one is, it's great. Check it out. Give it a chance. You don't have to like it, but like what you said earlier about uh, Robert Ebert's Roger. review, even if there's a, a slim chance that you might like some part of it, we think you're really going to like it. So, And hopefully you've already seen it. Otherwise, this was like almost two hours of your time that will not make a lot of sense, though we did spoil quite a few things. So there you go. Is there any other last-minute things before we wrap up? I don't know. I, I really think like so. it. I think it's great. I think it's uh, very ambitious and impressive that they're able to pull it off. Or at least execute it. I know some people would argue they don't pull it off, but and I think they do. It should have gotten editing awards. It should have got makeup and costuming awards. Also score, to be honest. Yeah, the score, I mean, the score is really good, guys. Listen to the score. If you if you feel like crying, listen to that score. Because it'll make you cry harder. So. It's good for working. Yeah, it's great. Anyway, should we sign off? Yes. Alright, so this has been Vicky. And Camden. And Grumpy Octopus Productions. Jowski Watch. That was Cloud Atlas, and we will talk to you guys soon. Goodbye. Bye. If you guys liked our show, please let us know. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcast, and also feel free to contact us on our main website. That one is grumpyoctopusproductions.com. Then I'll link you up to all of our social media. You can follow us on Twitter and or like us on Facebook. And you can reach out to us at our email account. That is grumpyoctopusproductions at gmail.com. I think we're sensing a bit of a trend here. <laughs> um, also on the website, you guys can check out all of our episode and production notes and fun little extras as well. So, as always, thanks for listening, loyal listeners. Alrighty, signing off. <laughs>